All right, we're in Acts tonight, Acts chapter 9. Uh, we've been in Acts since about August, and uh, the reason we chose uh, Acts back in August uh, is because uh, even though many things were the same for us when we started the ministry year, uh, one big thing was different, and that was where we were meeting. Uh, where we used to meet is kind of right there on the thoroughfare, there on Broadway, and now we're kind of tucked back in the neighborhood. And we really want to kind of reignite what's it mean to be outwardly faced as a church. What's it mean uh, for us to think about uh, people who aren't here as much as we think about the people who are here? And uh, there's no better place to go uh, in all the scriptures uh, than Acts for that kind of thing. So uh, we've been in here for a long time. And um, uh, last week we looked at the conversion of Saul. Uh, You might know him as Paul. Uh, He wrote uh, a really good chunk of the New Testament. And uh, we get to look like, what's his life look like after his conversion? Uh, what should we expect as Christians once we're converted? Um, and uh, Saul gives us a window into that. So uh, let's pray, and, and we'll look at this text. Jesus, uh, come to you uh, tonight, uh, much like many Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. Uh, Lord, I know uh, that there's nothing within me uh, that's really all that special. Uh, Lord, my uh, studies this week haven't um, qualified me for this. Uh, Lord, my training has not qualified me for this. Uh, Lord, my character has not qualified me for this. Lord, I stand on uh, the rock of Jesus. Uh, Lord, that you promise that through your word uh, that it will not be return void. Uh, Lord, we know uh, that when your word is coupled with your spirit, uh, that transformation happens uh, among the hearers. And Lord, I, I pray uh, that that kind of transformation would happen with me, uh, the preacher tonight. And so Lord, would you change me tonight? Uh, Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite musicians uh, is a guy named Johnny Lang. I won't ask uh, you to raise your hand if you know who Johnny Lang is. He's really uh, not all that famous. He's not poppy in the least. Uh, he's really not all that mainstream, uh, but he is successful. Uh, he's probably about my age, and uh, he is a blues artist, and uh, he got to be really famous at a young age. At the age of 15, uh, his first album uh, was number one on Billboard's new artist chart. 15. And this, I mean, to make it even worse, like he's not from Nashville, he's not from New York, he's not from L.A., he's from Fargo. Fargo, North Dakota. And he got found at 15. Then at 17, uh, he was nominated for a Grammy. And while he was still a teenager, he was touring as, uh, as a lead act, both a s- singer and playing guitar, uh, for B.B. King, Aerosmith, Sting, and Rolling Stones. The sky was the limit for this guy. He was so talented, and he wasn't even old enough to buy alcohol, but that didn't keep him away from the bottle. He began to use drugs and alcohol. And Johnny said this about his habits, looking back on those years. He said, and I was pretty much doing every substance that you can name. I think I overdosed a couple times. I probably wasn't smart. I should have gone to the hospital, but that never happened. So I got very lucky to not have died. So you can imagine what happened in his career, right? I mean, his extracurriculars began to affect his songwriting. And then he hit rock bottom. And when he hit rock bottom, his musical talent wasn't going to get him sober. Now, his musical talent could make him famous. His musical talent could entertain people. But his musical talent was not going to be any help in getting him sober. 
And his story kind of ends with a somewhat happy ending because he ends up getting clean. He ends up writing more music, and it's really, really good. But back if you looked at 15-year-old Johnny, 17-year-old Johnny, 19-year-old Johnny, you'd have thought there'd be nothing stopping the rise of this talented musician. But what he found out is what every talented person finds out. That talent does not prevent us from experiencing setbacks or resistance. Now, last week, we heard about a very talented person. Extreme drive, sharp intellect, and his name's Saul. And he gets converted to Christianity. There's much promise to his life, isn't there? I mean, what if he begins to leverage his natural gifts, his, his, his ambition, his intellect for the cause of the gospel? You'd think the sky's the limit, right? Just like you had thought for Johnny when he was 17. And you get to the end of our text last week. You get to the end of verse 19, and you begin to ask the question, what was this guy's life going to look like? We saw that God's called him into the ministry to reach the Gentiles, and surely he's just going to go from one success in ministry to the next. But he doesn't. See, when we're converted, we naturally begin to ask questions like, what's my life going to be like? How are others going to respond to the new me? Well, now that I've got this Holy Spirit living in me, am I just going uh, to have uh, a spiritual greatness and achievement one after the other after the other? Now, all these are valid questions. And I think Acts 9, talking about Saul, helps us know what to expect. So let's read this together. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoke to him. And how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord. So we've got three questions tonight. Uh, what resistance do we face? How do we overcome that resistance? And what happens if we persevere through resistance? So what resistance do we face? How do we overcome resistance? And what happens if we persevere through resistance? So that first one, uh, what kind of resistance do we face? Uh, what we find out pretty quick, right there, those first few verses, you would think that there's no resistance for Saul. He's pretty good at this whole preaching thing. 
And in verse 21, it's, you see it says uh, that the people who heard him were amazed at his preaching. And then in verse 22, you skip down just a little bit further, and it says that he increased all the more in strength. In other words, he's becoming more and more influential because his talent was abounding. And you think when the early church, those leaders, those apostles began to hear that Saul is having so much success that they'd be lining up a world tour for him to preach at. But that's not what happens. Because you see right there in the beginning of verse 23, you see see it where it says, many days passed. Many days passed. What's going on there? What does many days past mean? How many days? What's Paul doing during those days? And what we see is that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, uh, Paul has this autobiographical note where we get a window into what is he doing those days? Well, what he's not doing those days is he's not doing ministry. He's given up preaching. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, but for three years, Saul hangs up his hat after he's had so much success. Even though people are marveling at him, even though he's gaining strength, he takes a sabbatical. He takes a sabbatical after being about a month in. Doesn't make much sense, does it? Why would he do that? Well, in that Galatians text, you, you see that he's in Arabia, and Arabia is way out in the desert. He's also back in Damascus. So what's he doing? We don't know for sure, but it would not be crazy to say that he was led by God into the desert to go into the character formation school. See, think about how other biblical leaders are developed. You've got Joseph. Joseph, towards the end of, uh, of Genesis, he's growing in wisdom, but he's not growing in wisdom and comfort. He's growing in wisdom as a slave. He's growing in wisdom when he's imprisoned. That's his character formation school. Then there's Moses. Moses spent a season of his young adulthood in the desert of Midian, Midian tending sheep. You've got the nation of Israel as they're Growing up and maturing, they end up spending a season of 40 years in the desert. You've got David. Before he was king, he was a shepherd. Then you've got Hannah, Sarah, and Elizabeth. They're all struggling with infertility for a very extended period of time until they give birth to their first child. And then look at the life of Jesus. You can really look at two places with Jesus. You could look at him for 40 days and 40 nights. He's in the desert being tempted by Satan. And then from another angle, you can look at Jesus' life and say for 33 years he lived on the earth. The first 30 were in almost complete anonymity. No one knew what he was up to. He wasn't doing public ministry from the time he was 12 or 15 or 18 until he died at 33. He didn't come on the scene until he was 30. What was going on there? I think it was character formation school. But why does God work in this way? Why does he do this with his leaders? What's because success tends to make us arrogant? Think about what would have happened if Saul kept on amazing people and he kept on growing in strength. You know what he would have become, don't you? A grade A jerk. And that's what happens for all of us when our accomplishments outpace our character. 
And after your conversion, we've got to grow in our resistance to ourselves. We've got to unwean ourselves from this elixir of pride. See, our natural bent, it's to think that we're the cause of all the good in our lives. If something's good's happened, it's because of our ingenuity. It's because of our hard work. But when that's the case, who gets the credit? We do. But what a desert experience does is that it helps us properly resist pride when we begin to succeed. See, it's in the desert that the ego gets displaced. It's in the desert that we begin to see the world through the lens of the gospel. We begin to see the smallness of our lives. We begin to see the cracks in our lives. We begin to see our weakness. And we see that our weakness isn't something to hide. Rather, it's something to boast in. It's the thing that qualifies us for leadership. So how about you? What kind of humbling experience have you gone through that convinces you that you're not the sun in your universe? Have you been convinced for the first time that not everything revolves around your dreams, your desires, your expectations? Let me give you some tips on the desert. When you get to the land of suffering, when you get into the desert, it's real tempting to look around and begin to blame people who you think put you there. But the story of the scriptures is that God is the one who places us there. And he places us in the desert to detox you from you. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Marsha, I've never been to this thing that you call the desert. My life's been fairly easy up to this point. Nothing hard's ever really happened to me. And that's okay. But allow me to challenge you with something fairly radical. Pray that God would send you to the desert. You might say, come on, Marsh, man, you've fallen off your rocker now. But here's what Psalm 119 says. Psalm 119 doesn't say suffering. It uses a different word. It uses the word affliction. And here's what are the promises that happen when we're afflicted by a God who loves us. You'll see in Psalm 119 that affliction leads you to receive life from God's promises. No affliction, no life. We see that affliction uh, leads us to keep God's word. No affliction, no keeping God's word. We see that affliction causes us to learn God's statutes. No affliction, no learning God's statutes. But brother and sister in Christ, isn't that what you really want in your life? Don't you want the life that comes from God's promises? Don't you want to keep God's statutes? Don't you want to learn God's word? Now, when I'm honest, there are times where I say, no, 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 I, I really wouldn't. I, I'd prefer blindness than affliction. But then you don't choose the desert. God's going to choose the desert for you. He's going to force it on you. And that is good news, that we have a God who loves us that much. 
Because after you've been in the desert, you begin to see that being in the hands of a loving God is really freedom, even if that means suffering. And as we read through this text, we see that it wasn't just the self that Saul has to learn to resist. He's also got to deal with two kinds of haters. He's got haters on the outside, and he's got haters on the inside. Those on the outside of the faith, and those on the inside of the faith. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, you see that Saul's got haters outside the faith, and they're the Jews. And they're the Jews that are in Damascus. But remember, verses 21 and 22, what we read just a minute ago, is that this is, Damascus is where he had had so much success in his ministry before he went out to the desert. And now he comes back after the desert, and everybody wants to kill him. Now he escapes, he climbs into a basket, and he's lowered through a hole in the city wall. But you begin to think about what are the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, what are they like up to this point in the book of Acts? Well, up to this point, they've been threatening Christians, they've been killing Christians, they've been imprisoning Christians, they've been beating Christians. So really no surprise there, right? That those on the outside of the faith would resist us. They resist us all. But what might be surprising to you as it was to me tonight is that there's resistance that happens on the inside of the faith. Now, surely, I mean, you've got this talented guy. He's slaying it in verses 21 and 22. That these apostles, they'd be so glad to have such a promising talent who's now on their team. It's been three years. This fire-breathing opponent of the church has surely calmed down. Surely they're not afraid of him anymore. But in verse 26, what you see is that they are very afraid of Saul. And they don't believe that he could possibly be a disciple of Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there and say, sure, Marsh, Uh, Saul's talented, Uh, Saul's intellectual, Saul's famous, Saul has this reputation. Of course it makes him a lightning rod. But there's just little old me right here. I'm not mainstream. I'm pretty vanilla. Uh, If I post something on social media, I I couldn't get 100 likes if I tried. And it's true. Most of us aren't household names. Most of us will be forgotten after two two generations after our death. I hate to burst your bubble. But you almost certainly will be resisted by Christians. You almost certainly be resisted by non-Christians. And here's why. It really doesn't matter how winsome you are. But when those outside the faith begin to see that you have a new life, that's founded in Jesus, it's, begin, it's going to begin to interfere with them. Let me give you a couple examples. If you, uh, up to the point of your conversion, have lived to please your parents, and then you realize that you have to please Jesus before you please your parents, and then you begin to please Jesus instead of your parents, your parents are going to feel displaced, and your parents will reject you to some degree. I've seen it happen again and again and again. A lot of the times it's respectful, a lot of time, but a lot of times it's passive aggressive. You feel it. You might not be able to articulate, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you begin to see that things aren't the way they used to be. And it's not your fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's Jesus's. 
maybe it's money. Maybe you're converted and you, were, you, were, you had money and you used your money to win friends. And your friends would benefit because you were buying their affection. But then Jesus comes into the equation. You can't use your money to win friends anymore. You've got to do what he says to do with your money. And guess what happens to your friends? They leave you. No surprises there. But the surprise about Christians, here's, but here's the deal. It's really easy for us Christians, it's really easy for us to see God's power at work in our own lives. And it's also really easy for us to doubt God's ability to change others. That's what happened for the apostles. See, we Christians, we fear being thought of as naive. We fear being taken advantage of by those who are on the outside. And so when someone with a checkered history comes into our midst, who's been converted, we tend to be skeptical. It's tough news, isn't it? Aren't you dying to be converted now? Aren't you dying to be like, man, I'd love to uh, really do battle with this big, ugly inner dragon of the self. I'd really love to be hated by those inside and outside the faith. Sounds great. Where can I sign up? But God doesn't leave Saul alone in his resistance. He gives Saul a way to overcome this resistance. He gives Saul support. And that's what we see. How do we overcome our resistance? We see it in verse 25 and 27. In verse 25, you don't see uh, uh, at once uh, all the Jews start hating Saul, that Saul, he, he uh, hides somewhere in the bushes and he draws up this plan how he's going to get out of there. That's not what happens. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't seek relief by himself. And uh, he gets aid from other Christians. Then in verse 27, he's got another Christian who comes alongside of him. Not all the Christians are, or not all those inside the faith are against him. Some are, but some aren't. And we see another one. We see it's a man named Barnabas in verse 27. Barnabas comes alongside of him. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. And Barnabas comes alongside. He grabs him by the arm and he walks him into the room with the apostles. And Barnabas vouches for him. Barnabas says that he believes that Saul's really been converted. He speaks to the kind of ministry that Saul did in Damascus, that, that real gospel fruit really did come to bear. But think how risky this was for Barnabas. How did Barnabas not know that Saul was going to get on the inside with Christians' biggest leaders and then turn on them and kill them all? He didn't. See, last week we saw this guy named Ananias, and Ananias... Barnabas, as far as we know, didn't get that kind of vision. So you know that Barnabas had to have scruples. He had to have hesitations that had to be overcome in order to, for him to befriend this unlikely newcomer. And don't we face the same challenge? See, all churches, we struggle with what's acceptable and what's non-acceptable with new additions into our community. There's this unsaid standard. It's more easily felt than it is articulated. That new people need to rise to in order to be welcomed into our fellowship. For the early church, the standard was pretty simple, wasn't it? The standard was you couldn't have any point in the, in the past be a raging Jewish opponent. 
And that makes sense on a human level, but not a gospel level. Some churches that you could be a part of, they don't want children around because they're loud and disruptive. We can't do that here. Um, we'll lose half our members if that happens. Sure, they, these kind of churches, they never say that, but that's the impression that's given. Other churches, they want members that are all from one political party. Again, they never say that, but that's the impression. But how about at, our, how about at this church? What's our unsaid standard? What's it going to take for us to feel like that kind of person would have a tough time fitting in around here? And I can assure you, when Saul walked in the door with Barnabas on his elbow, the apostle said, that's going to be a hard person to fit in around here. See, Saul needed Barnabas. And we need some Barnabases around here for our unlikely converts. We need some Barnabas to stand up and say, this person might break our mold for what it means to follow Jesus, but this is going to be really good for us. Now, what's needed is a whole lot more than an admonition to be inclusive. I know this admonition to be inclusive, it really plays well in theory, but we need something more powerful to overcome our hesitancy and our skepticism when it comes to new converts who break the mold. See, eventually, you and I will meet, will meet our inclusivity limit. It's going to get reached fast. Someone's going to come in, someone's going to test the depth of our inclusion, and we're going to need a supernatural power. Where's that power going to come from? I think it comes when we look at how we've been included in a cosmic sense. See, think about the very beginning of our story as God's people. All the way back to creation. God didn't create mankind because he was lonely. He was three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They enjoyed the tightest relationship that you can possibly imagine. And because of the joy that they experienced within their three persons, they created the world, which included us, into that fellowship, into that inclusion. But we shunned the welcome of God. We would have rather run the show. But that's what led to our exclusion. So in Adam and Eve, we get kicked out of God's presence at the end of Genesis 3. And I think the most shocking thing about the Bible is that it keeps going after Genesis 3. If I were God, I would have closed the book right there. End of story, that's a wrap. But what you see from Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 21 is a God who wants to re-include us back into fellowship with him. And the pinnacle of the story happens with his beloved son, Jesus. Jesus becomes the new Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam didn't want to live in submission to the Father. Jesus did. And Jesus lived in submission all the way to the point that he became excluded in order that we, his people, might be included once again. And now, this Jesus didn't just die 2,000 years ago, and now he's just an idea and a story that we tell. No, no, no. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And one of the roles that he plays 
is that of advocate. He's the true and better Barnabas. See, Barnabas took Saul and he brought him before the apostles. Saul's never been taken by the arm. He only takes other people by the arm. Saul's never been brought in front of others. He only has people brought in front of him. And now he's dependent, utterly dependent. And he's got some guy with a wimpish name that means son of encouragement, grabbing his shirt and dragging him in front of a group who he knows is afraid of him and doesn't want to accept him. Can you see Saul's psyche? And aren't you in the same position tonight, friends? You know that you have no right to stand before a holy God. And so what you need is for Jesus to grab you by the shirt and drag you in front of the Father and advocate for you. And the good news of the gospel is that you have this advocate in Jesus. 1 John 2 says this, If anyone does sin, not anyone does not sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins. So friends, to the degree that you see that Jesus was excluded so that you could be included will be the degree of welcome that you'll be able to offer those you're tempted to exclude. Moreover, the only way that you will, be pers- that you will persist as you're resisted is when you see that the hardest audience to be included into has already been secured. See, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have extended their eternal greetings to you. And it's only that that's going to help you face the resistance of both the world and other Christians. That's how you will overcome being resisted, is when you see that you have that kind of advocate. And then in verse 31, we see what happens in our lives. What happens when we begin to, kind of, to, to embrace that kind of advocate, when we begin to say, okay, I'm going to persevere through this resistance as I fight my own sin, as I face the haters? What happens in our lives? Well, verse 31 gives us five things. you see it? The person who perseveres has peace. Right? The church, too. The church or the person that perseveres has peace, strength, Encouragement, growth, and godliness. And that's shocking if you think about it. All this opposition and all the threats, the church is strengthened. It it increases in both maturity. That's why you have words like peace and encouragement and godliness. These subjective things are hard to kind of to quantify. But it also increases in number. That's why we see the word growth. And what verse 31 should tell us is that nothing, no amount of discrimination by church leaders, no amount of discrimination, of violent attacks from the world, no amount of arrogance on behalf of new converts can thwart God from bringing his kingdom to bear on earth. God's committed to you, brother and sister. God's committed to our church. He's going to bring these five things to bear in your life and in our midst. 
So while you're in the desert, while you're being resisted by the haters, I know it's easy for cynicism to win out, but I'm telling you, life is on the way. If Jesus couldn't be stopped by the grave, then you can persevere and, dare I say, even blessed while you endure resistance. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, uh, in some ways, is a hard pill to swallow uh, that you promise this kind of resistance to us. So we see it in the life of Saul. We'll see it in our own lives. And Lord, help us uh, not to have our eyes only uh, on the pain that we experience. Help us uh, to have our eyes set on what you promise us. Now, Lord, that you really do promise things like peace and encouragement. You really do promise godliness and growth and strength. And so, Lord, we come as empty buckets with holes all in them. Lord, that you'd fill us once again. Do this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.